0: this morning we're back in our churchology series where we've been thinking through the church, studying the church. And this morning we have come to the um, doctrine of baptism. And so we're going to be thinking about baptism this morning. Now, as I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a scene from a movie, uh, Nacho Libre. Uh, a movie that, if you have not seen, I think is helpful to understand baptism. So uh, I was watching this movie, and what's interesting is throughout, uh, Nacho is extremely concerned about the baptism of his friend, Escalito. And so as he's uh, spending time with him, he's constantly making reference to this. And there's one scene where he comes in, and he says, I'm concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. Why have you not been baptized? And Escalito responds... Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me, because I only believe in science. And then Nacho sneaks up behind Escalito with a huge bucket of water, dunks his head, and then smiles with this satisfied look. Like, I've accomplished what I set out to do. He's been baptized. Now, I wish I could just spend our whole time really just discussing that scene and all the problems with it. But instead, what I want to do is just acknowledge that some of us have a little bit of a misunderstanding of baptism. In fact, some of us might actually think of it a lot like Escalito or Nacho in some way. But what we want to be thinking about is what the Bible has to say about this critical, important doctrine. Now, I know that we can often find this not just difficult biblically, but even relationally. Uh, some of our thoughts and understandings of of baptism can actually even create hostility in the home. So I I actually grew up in a home where my mom came from a Lutheran family. I was sprinkled as an infant, uh, and my my grandmother actually was very concerned about my children, that they had not been baptized, that that might mean that they're not saved. In fact, uh, she at, at times was so concerned about it, she even sought to bribe me Uh, She told me that she was willing to fully fund me studying in Germany if I just promised to be a Lutheran pastor and baptize my children. I had to think a little bit about whether or not I was really convicted about baptism. Uh, But I came out on the other side biblically uh, realizing that I really did believe it was what the Bible taught that we should baptize believers So I know that it can get messy with your family and different views on baptism, and it can cause tensions, but we want to understand what God's Word says about baptism. Now, I think it's important when we're having this conversation just to recognize that there have been different views in the church uh, about the nature of what baptism means. And so there really have been three major views, lots of views, but three I think that are helpful to think about. Uh, The first is uh, the, the Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view. Uh, They actually consider it to be one of their seven sacraments because they believe that it actually is a a sacrament where you enter into the water, which mysteriously will actually work in the person that dips in the water to bring about a movement of the Spirit and regeneration. Well, that's different. They, They baptize their infants, and that means that they are part of the visible church, but that's different than another kind of infant baptism, and that's the kind that you find amongst Protestants. So Protestant baptism, like you would find in a Presbyterian church, is a, a paedo-baptism or infant baptism that understands that what they are doing is really roughly synonymous with what you find Israel doing in the Old Testament. You would circumcise young Israel boys in eight days, and that represented the fact that they were part of the visible people of God, and so they baptized babies, and that pictures them as being part of the visible people of God. Now hear me, that does not mean that they are united with Christ in their view. Now you can be a part of the church and not be united with Christ. But, but what's fascinating is in both of those views, baptism is entrance into the church and incorporates you into the people of God. Well, the same is true with what we would call the, the credo-baptist view, uh, the word for creed or, or statement of faith. Uh, That view is the view that Trinity has held uh, since her beginning, as far as I know. And, And it's this view that we believe that the church is actually made up of regenerate people, people who have been born again as they have heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit has raised them to newness of life, and they are baptized as an outward display of that inward reality of what God has done in circumcising their hearts. Now, that view, too, comes from a, a vision of how they understand the church. See, they baptize believers because they believe that the church is actually made up of regenerate folks who have been born again. So that the church isn't believers in their kids or kind of some who think they're Christians and maybe others aren't. They expect that their church membership, as far as they can tell with human eyes, reflects the heaven, heavenly membership that they will see one day in heaven. And that's the view that our church is held to and holds to But notice that every historical view has understood the Bible to teach that baptism is the doorway into the church. And the theology of baptism is intimately interwoven into the way that we understand the nature of the local church. And so I'm praying that as we unpack what God's Word says about baptism, that the Holy Spirit will help us value this doctrine as much as Jesus does. And so I want to begin with Jesus this morning in Matthew 28. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn there. That's going to be our base text where we are spending much of our time. Matthew 28. And we're really going to be focusing on just three verses, 18 to 20. And you can turn there as we get started. But let me ask for the Lord's help this morning. Will you pray with me as we get started? Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you. We praise you because we know that your Son, Jesus Christ, is in authority Over heaven and earth. All things visible and isn't invisible are under the reign, the sovereign reign of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose victoriously and ascended to the right hand of your throne, where he now sits interceding for us. Father, we ask this morning as we come before you that your spirit would help us to see and to understand what your word has to say, not men's inventions, but what your word has to say about who you are and how your people should live together. Do this in the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is this. Our cosmic king, Jesus, tells us to baptize Christians. Our cosmic king, Jesus, tells us to baptize Christians. Now You'll, you'll remember Matthew's whole gospel, his book, introduces Jesus as the king who has come to reign over God's kingdom. That's what we find in the, the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 28 begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and ends in verses 18 to 20 with the Great Commission, the verses we're looking at. And I want you to take note of three things here. First, that baptism is an issue of obedience. Second, baptism displays conversion. And third, baptism is the sign of the new covenant. We'll go through those one by one. So first, this baptism is an issue of obedience to the cosmic king. We find that in verse 18. Notice how he begins his great commission. He says this in verse 18, where Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By virtue of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, God has revealed at this point that Jesus is the cosmic king. He is king of heaven and earth. And we find later in Colossians that he is also lord over every molecule. All things are under the reign of King Jesus. His kingdom knows no Ends, it knows no bounds. Jesus reigns over the billions of people that are scattered throughout our planet, which is one of many billions of planets and many billions of galaxies with many billions of stars throughout the universe, as well as innumerable creatures, both seen and unseen, in spiritual realms. And it's from that throne that he claims all authority has been given to me by my Father. Now just to dredge up an old word to describe this kind of authority that we spoke of last week, it's the word imperium. God has given Jesus Christ imperium or absolute authority. The the buck stops with Jesus. When my kids want to do something, they know that the buck stops with dad, unless dad says no and they go to mom. But when you're thinking about Christ, there is no other authority or workaround to get what you desire apart from Christ. And sin will never get you there. But don't miss this. Whatever follows from verse 18 flows from Jesus' appeal to His authority over all things. And catch where Jesus decides immediately to flex His muscles of authority. He does it in discipleship. He says, that's what I want you to think about when you think about my authority and what I've called you to. I want you to think about discipleship. Second, you'll notice that baptism not only is an issue of obedience to Jesus, but baptism displays conversion. Displays conversion in in verse 19 and 20. Look, Look there with me again at what he says in verses 19 to 20. He says this, he says, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, "'baptizing them in the name of the Father "'and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.'" teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you've probably heard that there really is in this verse, in these two verses, verses 19 and 20, just one main imperative verb, the verb to make disciples. And then there are these two words that are participles that, that hang off of it that describe how it is that we're to make disciples. And he gives two words. Uh, the first is baptizing them. And the second is teaching them. So you, you baptize new believers and you teach new believers. That's what it means to make a disciple. Now you'll notice that discipleship, of course, is of first importance to Jesus. And if you look up the Greek word for make disciples, uh, you'll discover that it really just means uh, to make a pupil, or it's someone who is an adherent of a teacher, someone who follows a teacher. That's what a disciple is. And here, of course, in context, it's King Jesus. So, if you want to be a disciple, you follow Jesus. A disciple here is someone who is observing or obeying Jesus' teachings. Now, a disciple is not what some would say a kind of elite, Navy Seals-like group of subgroup of Christians. Disciple is not meant to sort of compartmentalize a special kind of believer. It is actually the only kind of believer. It's basic but true Christianity. And so when we see here that there is a call to make disciples, it's really a call to make Christians, people who are living under the reign of King Jesus in the kingdom of King Jesus. If you reinsert this definition of disciple to follow the teachings of Jesus, these verses might actually sound a little redundant. I mean, think about it. It would say something like, one makes followers of Jesus' teachings by baptizing them and teaching them to observe Jesus' teaching. Not only that, baptism might sound redundant as well in this. I mean, just think about this. Why did Jesus in this moment need to tell them to baptize when that would surely be included in teaching them all that I have commanded? But why, of all things, pick out, oh, and then this special thing, baptism, that I've commanded you to do? Well, not only that, what we have to ask ourselves is, what makes baptism here so unique that it needs to be set apart like this? Is it most important, or is it the first step of discipleship? Well, I actually had the benefit of asking Dr. Don Carson this yesterday. I usually have to look it up and read it. Yesterday, he actually told me about this verse. I was asking him about this particular point. And he said, you know, I've actually written on that before. I was surprised as he was. And he said, you know, here I believe what's going on is baptism. It, it actually stood for a kind of metonymy, for conversion. Now, I know metonymy is like a very hard word. I had to look it up myself. But it's a word that means an expression that stands for something that it is associated with. So baptism is associated with with conversion. And, and that's why baptism stands for, actually here, conversion. Now to give you an example of this, uh, Billy Sunday was uh, a famed evangelist. He was uh, a guy that, you know, had been kind of a, sort of not a great guy, uh, but very athletic. And he, he became an evangelist and a preacher. He used to even do like flips in the pulpit, whatever it took to get people to come. And he started noticing a problem he had. He would go and pitch his revival tent And when he would pitch it, he noticed that there were problems when he he pitched it when it was dry. People, when hundreds would come down to get saved, it would cause all kind of dust and coughing and this horrible scene, and it was really disruptive, and so he said, that's not going to work. And then when it was raining and he would pitch the tent, he would notice that it would get like really muddy and slippery, and people would like fall down and get muddy, and and that, that really didn't work either. And so then he decided that what he would do is he would actually lay down sawdust before he pitched the tent, and when he did that, people would be able to walk down the aisle without dust or mud, and it was a great thing. And it became such a a well-known reality that people began to speak of salvation as hitting the sawdust trail. So instead of saying, you know, were were you saved, they would say, so when did you hit the sawdust trail? And, And that would mean, when did you become a Christian? We actually have a better example of this in the Bible itself. It's baptism. When somebody says that you are saved by baptism, it's not saying that baptism saves you, that you believe in baptismal regeneration. If you're thinking biblically, what it means is uh, baptism is so associated with what it means to become a Christian that to say that to ask someone when they were converted, uh, it would be okay for them to say they were baptized. In fact, I believe that if you were to ask a first century Ephesian when they were converted... They just might have responded, I was baptized in Ephesus in 58. Now you wouldn't have to stop and correct their theology there because you would know that they weren't speaking literally. They were speaking figuratively of the idea of when they came to Christ. Now why would they do that? Because baptism stood so closely to conversion that one assumed the other. In fact, Jesus says, Baptism marks when one has transferred from the nations to the kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't have a a concept of a a non-baptized Christian. The, The early church didn't have a concept of that. That didn't mean that they didn't believe that somebody could be a Christian without getting baptized. It was just that Christians got baptized. Now, please don't miss this. I am not saying that you can't be a believer and not be baptized. I know many of them who love Jesus. And I'm not saying that you can't delay baptism until the next baptismal service or to give time to teach a, a new convert prior to baptism. There, there are reasons sometimes to delay. But Jesus understands baptism to be so closely associated with conversion that baptism stood for conversion. Now, I know when you hear this, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, I feel like I've got these red legalism flags sort of flying all over my mind and going crazy. I mean, are you saying that we need to get baptized if we are Christians? Well, I I want to say that if if that's your question, I think we want to deal with Jesus on that. And what does Jesus say here in Matthew 28 and Matthew 3 and elsewhere about baptism? What does God's Word say? I think here what we need to understand is Christians are baptized Christians. Uh, It is important if you're a Christian to be baptized. And if you get that, I don't think that you're going to have trouble with some really difficult texts that are going to mess with you in the New Testament. Like, when you come to 1 Peter 3, 21, and and Peter says, baptism now saves you. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, Peter is a legalist. I mean, I like Paul better, and Jesus, but that sounds like legalism, and that's just confusing. And it is, unless you understand what Peter means. He is saying that uh, Peter is reflective of conversion. It's not salvation in the sense of washing of dirt from the skin but it's an appeal of a good conscience. When we are baptized, we are declaring publicly that we have trusted Christ and follow Him. See, after Peter preaches Christ crucified at Pentecost, the Jews ask what they must do to be saved. To which Peter responds in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is that legalism? Well, not if we understand the first century Christian and the way they understood baptism as a shorthand for conversion. Could it be that we just don't treat baptism as serious as we should? And maybe we as churches need to do a better job of teaching the importance of baptism. You know, I was just talking to a a good brother the other day uh, about Christianity in Muslim nations. And one of the things that he pointed out was that in many Muslim nations, the problem is not if you start holding on to Christian beliefs. Folks are kind of okay with that. But if you get baptized, it could cost you your life. Why? Because it visibly demonstrates that you are transferring your membership from one group to another. You are stepping into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and away from the kingdom of this world. Well, there's a third thing that we see here, and that's this. Baptism is the public sign of the New Covenant community. Baptism is the public sign of the New Covenant community. Now you'll notice also that they baptize these folks into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we look at Matthew 3, we find the baptism of Jesus, which is actually different than our baptism. See, Jesus told John the Baptist to baptize him. If you look there in Matthew 3, Uh, You'll notice that that tells the story of when John the Baptist actually baptized Christ. And you'll remember that Jesus says that he had to have John baptize him to fulfill all righteousness. And we don't have time really to spend a lot of time on this, explaining and unraveling what that means. But I think that at least Jesus is obeying John's call to be baptized as a last Old Testament prophet. Remember, he said you need to come out and be baptized as a prophet of God. And Jesus is submitting to the Word of God. Now, I think there's more to that, but at least that. But he also needed to be baptized to establish the sign of the new covenant. So you, you remember that he, he's been baptized, and he's baptized, as he's baptized in Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17, we see the scene where the heavens open up. And as the heavens open up, the Spirit of God descends down from heaven, and it rests upon Jesus, the eternal Son of God, taken on flesh in Christ. And as that happens, you hear the voice of God crying out from heaven, saying, this one, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been happy with people in a really long time, but this guy, he's different. He's my Son. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you read that and you think to yourself, well, this is a picture of God adopting Jesus. He didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Good for Christ. You know, this is a good day. Now he can start doing some good in the world. But that really isn't reading the Bible carefully, because what we find is what's happening is Jesus is actually being anointed as king. See, this is referencing here a fulfillment of Psalm, of Psalm 2, verse 6. And in Psalm 2, verse 6, we have this, this, this psalm that comes and it is praising the coming Messiah. And in this coming Messiah who would be a king over the people of God, there God says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, baptism signaled a new creation with a new king and kingdom who would usher in a new and better covenant. And Jesus' baptism launched his public earthly ministry that's when jesus went public with who he was it was at his baptism and he just, he just demonstrated after that his authority in his many miracles and his otherworldly authority as he healed the sick and forgave sins so that new covenant would later it would later come and be sealed with his blood on the cross where he himself died not only as the priest but as a sacrifice in our place for our sins as the good king and shepherd of our souls, rescuing us from the just wrath of God. See, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he told the disciples to baptize people out of every nation into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now back to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Circumcision was the sign of joining the people of God in Israel under the old covenant. And when God enters into the covenant with his people, he is actually, he's do, what he's doing is he's identifying himself with his people. He's saying, I am with you and you are with me. In fact, you'll remember whenever he sends the Mosaic covenant and gives that to his people Israel, he tells them, I will be your God and you will be my people. Do, do you see that? He's, he's saying, We are living in intimate relationship with one another. Now, you'll remember from last week that God has always manifested his glory through embodied communities of real people. From Adam and Eve to Israel to the local church. And baptism is a a sign that one is truly part of Christ and His physical, visible people. Now Don Carson, writing on this very verse, speaks of what it means to to be baptized into the name of the triune God. And he says this, the preposition into strongly suggests a coming into relationship with. Or coming under the lordship of. See, baptism is a sign of both entrance into the Messiah's covenant community and of pledged submission to his lordship. So so baptism is, is the public sign of joining the new covenant people of God with Jesus as their head, as their king. Now Christians are baptized in the name of the triune God as a public outward sign of union with King Jesus and his people. It's going public with your faith, as Bobby Jameson says. So the local church makes a statement about the faith of the person baptized as the person being baptized is making a statement about their faith. Now let me just say, this is meant to be an instrument of God in your life for assurance. Let I me mean, just think about this. We're going to have four folks today who are getting baptized. And what we are saying with you, brothers and sisters, is that we believe your testimony that you are of Christ and His people. We affirm that. We want to encourage you to be assured that you really are part of the people of God. Not only are you saying it, we are saying it together. Isn't that good assurance? I think so. Everett Ferguson, speaking of this same thing, and thinking about the the hostility of the, the first century Rome, where Jesus would have known nothing of an anonymous or even exclusive private kind of religion. Everett Ferguson writes about this and he says, The uniqueness of Christian baptism from other washings that preceded it, like the Jewish washings, is it is actually communal by nature. Right? So, so baptism might look like the washings that preceded it, but it's really different. Now I've actually been to the Qumran community in Israel and uh, I've seen the pools where they would wash themselves. They would do it twice a day. They would wash themselves daily. And uh, they were actually big enough to do cannonballs in, but don't do that, you'll get in trouble. Not from experience, I'm just, I've heard from certain people that that's not good. But they were big enough to dunk in. Like you would, I mean it would be hard not to be dunked in, they were so deep. And so in the Christian baptism, we find something different Because in those baptisms, you would actually dunk yourself. But in Christian baptism, the local church baptizes you as an exercise of the power of the keys. that's given to the church in Matthew 16, where he says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's a real connection between what you are doing here on earth spiritually and what is true of your future in heaven to baptism is a practice of the local church, binding people on earth as an earthly manifestation of the heavenly kingdom on earth. See, this is to say that you are part of the new covenant people of God. Now, here's the important thing to note. God has always put his name on a people. So an individual puts their faith in King Jesus, and King Jesus has a kingdom presently seen by humanity in the local church. Now, I know here's some will hear this, and they will say, you know, but but my dad baptized me in the bathtub, or I was baptized at a youth camp. So are you saying that I need to get baptized again? Now, I just want to be really clear. I, I don't want, as a pastor, to cause people to needlessly question their baptisms. And I don't like to re-baptize people. We usually... As as we have folks come in, we we really are concerned about their consciences and never want to make people do something against their conscience. We want consciences to be educated by the Word of God, to obey the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit leads in. I'm simply trying to express here that what Jesus had in mind when he talked about baptism, and, and I want to express that in this sense, I want all of us to grow in our understanding of how we should think about the practice of baptism going forward. So I find a Christian instructional manual from long ago to be helpful in this conversation. At least I always have. Maybe you don't, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. So in about 100 AD, there was this Christian manual called the Didache. And in it, they actually had a description and explanation about baptism and how a church should practice it. And what's fascinating is they said, uh, basically, as you baptize someone, what's preferential, what's best, is if you use running water or living waters. That's what they called running waters, living waters. And if you don't have living waters, you can use still waters. And if you use still waters, it's better if they're cold than warm. But if you don't have cold water, you can use warm water. And if you don't have enough water, then you can splash them three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then that's sufficient. Now, here's what I I like about this. Uh, Now, I don't agree with their standards, but here's what I like about it. What they're trying to say is, is that we're trying to just talk about what we think are best practices according to what we see in the Bible. And that's exactly what we are called to do as a local church, is to actually say, what does it look like the Bible is clearly doing as the best practices? And our best practices are meant for today. They're not meant to go back in history and fix everything. They're meant for today. How are we going to move forward and live as a people of God? And so I don't agree with these categories. Uh, I, I actually don't like water cold. I like it warm. But I do agree that there is a sense in which looking back there is a base meaning of what is a normative practice, and that's all we're trying to speak of when we speak of baptism. Are you baptized on a profession of faith or not? I think that's kind of important. If you're a professing believer, and you believe yourself to be baptized as a believer. And, and not only that, does your conscience affirm that you are baptized as a believer? Because that's really important too. If so, you know, we don't want to discourage you. We also don't want to pass uh, to <clears throat> past exceptions. We don't want past exceptions to set the rule for normal practices in the church. So there are always going to be ways in which we, we miss perfection. I, I don't know if y'all knew this, but individuals aren't perfect and churches aren't perfect. And, and we actually are just trying to be faithful with who God's brought us to be and called us to be. So we understand baptism is something that the local church does for professing believers regularly done by the mode of immersion. We dunk people here. You'll see that today. In fact, you might want to watch this zone, like, because sometimes there's, like, when we really dunk them, there's, like, a splash out, and you might get in the wet zone. Y'all might want to move later. You're fine now. But we baptize by immersion, and catch this. I think there's something significant that happens between Jesus' last words here and his ascension in Acts 1. So, if you will, turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 2, because I believe that Matthew 28... It tells you about what the resurrected Lord does with baptism, but I think we need to see what the ascended Lord does in Acts chapter 2. And I'm just going to catch you up to speed to, to sort of move us forward to where we need to go. So I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, biblical theology here real quick. The first is, you need to remember as we're about to read from Acts 2, that God has promised that he is going to give his people a new and better covenant in Jeremiah 31:31. His prophets often speak of this covenant. Jeremiah says that in this covenant, you're going to get new hearts. My people will have new hearts because that's really the the core of what their problem is with obedience to me. They need an internal change. They circumcised their flesh. Israel did. But God promises there coming a day when He's going to do something more, He Himself will circumcise their hearts. He's going to change their hearts. And they needed to bring about Uh, He was going to bring about a new creation in them. He had to if they were going to be a new people and experience God's good new covenant. Then Ezekiel 36 tells us about this covenant. He said that God would also put His Spirit within them. So circumcision of the heart, a new heart, the reception of the Holy Spirit, those are all pictures of what this new covenant would bring. And then I love the picture in Joel 2.28 where he says that on that day, God is going to unleash His Holy Spirit on all flesh, speaking of all people, which we know from the New Testament to mean all nations. And so this covenant is coming. Now, Galatians 3 does a great job of actually putting all these ideas together in the context of the reality of what baptism means. But we don't have time for that. What we do have time for is this. After Jesus ascended at Pentecost, God sent His Spirit upon His people. And Jesus, King Jesus... At Pentecost, when He unleashed His Spirit on His people, King Jesus went up and then sent the Holy Spirit down. And the Spirit rushed upon the Jews, gathered there from the nations to worship during this season. And Peter said that those new covenant promises in the Old Testament, they had arrived with the long-awaited heart circumcision and gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they had heard this in Acts chapter 2, These people cried out, what shall we do? Isn't that a great question to hear from somebody who is not a believer, who hears the gospel, and they say, what what do I need to do? Well, this is a question that's happening in Mass at Pentecost, and here's how Peter responds in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And catch what happens in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. They were baptized. And notice immediately what happens. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls to their number. And then in 42, you'll notice that right after that, they, they, they believed God. They received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized. They've been added to the number. And then what are they doing? They're gathering around the teaching of the word and practicing communion together in verse 42. It's a normal uh, arrangement that we see throughout the Bible and throughout the history of the church. And then in verse 42, we find that after they do that, we get a picture of what baptism signals. And here's what baptism signals, just to wrap this up. It signals that we have been born again, receiving the promised circumcision of hearts, that circumcision of the flesh pointed to. Baptism tells us that we are the first fruits of a new creation with a new king and a new kingdom so that the holy spirit indwells in us and it actually seals us for the last day as it progressively as the holy spirit progressively transforms us from one degree of glory until the next until that day when we hold lay hold of that inheritance of an immeasurable weight of glory that awaits us and what a good thing that the that baptism actually represents for us. But also notice that baptizing added them to the number such that 120 people in Acts 1 who were waiting for the Spirit became 3,000 souls in Acts 2. See, baptism displayed being added to God's visible people. But it also pictures union with Christ in His burial and resurrection. So in Romans 6, 4, it says that we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism. Into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, in a minute, when we baptize these folks, we will be submerging them, baptizing, saying, You are buried with Christ, and then we'll raise them up and saying, Raised to newness of life. In other words, all that our King has and does is accredited to us. That is incredible news, brothers and sisters. Everything that is Christ is. Ours, we receive the new covenant benefits of Christ's sacrificial death and the promise of a glorious future, of a day when we will be receiving this this call to walk in newness of life. See, this newness of life, hang in with me, comes with a new heart uh, for a new people in a new creation. With a new king and a new way of life who await a new heavens and a new earth. Baptism is glorious and meaningful. Now, why wouldn't you want to put your faith in Christ and get baptized and be part of that? So if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you've not been baptized, let me encourage you to talk with me or one of the other elders after the service to discuss more about how you can do that. But I have some questions I want to answer as as we close up. I have a few questions about baptism. I, just, I know we've had a lot of questions, and so I want to answer some of these, and maybe I'll create some new ones that we can talk about later. But let's go ahead and look through some of these. First, how old do I need to be to be baptized? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I know that some churches have set a, a limit on the age of baptism, and our elders spent a, a good bit of time praying and thinking through this. And as far as we can tell, we didn't see any clear indication in the Bible that there's an age limit on baptism, and so we decided not to set one. But we do appreciate the conviction of heart that we do need to see these other realities in a person that baptism points to, like the presence of the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of heart, a committedness to walk in newness of life. And not only that, we decided that we really don't believe that if you want to be a Christian, whether you are 8 or 80 that there is some kind of halfway sort of plan for Christianity so that you can sort of partially partake or sort of halfway partake. In fact, we, we look at the New Testament, it seems like either you're in the New Covenant in the kingdom or you're not. And so we, we encourage everyone that wants to put their faith in Christ to come to one of our Connections classes where we tell you about the gospel and what it means to be part of the people of God. And then we encourage you to meet with a couple of pastors where we his, hear your testimony and make sure you understand the gospel. And, and then we set up a time to, to baptize you after we, of course, present you before the congregation. So just so you know, like if, if you want to become a Christian, there's no halfway way to do it. We want you to come to Christ and to be baptized. There's a second question, though, that we have, and that's this. It's, is it bad to delay baptism? Now I would just say that depends on why, why you're, baptized, why you're delaying baptism. Uh, So just so you know, um, I know that some people are like into instant immersions and like, let's just do it like right now. I just met you and um, I've actually seen that happen before. Um, I've even seen somebody baptize someone who they didn't even know the language the other person spoke, but they were sort of at the Jordan and like everybody was doing it and they're like, I want to get, you know, the thing. And they're like, yeah, let's just do this. And I would just say that that's not necessarily the best way, the most thoughtful way to go about baptism. In fact, I think that, that really what the Bible says is we want to see the Holy Spirit at work. And so if you're waiting on baptism, I would just say, you know what? Some churches historically have done that. In fact, in the first, uh, I think, century, second century, we have evidence that some churches only baptized like once a year on uh, Easter. And so you would always, you know, think about it. You came to faith on Easter and you're like, man, i got to wait a whole year. But through that year, they would actually teach them more about Christ and what it meant to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I would say you need to know at least something about what that means, right? And also what it means to be part of the people of God, and what it means to to take on some of the the benefits and responsibilities of being a Christian and being part of the people of God. And that is all a picture of disciples, which is what we are looking to make, not just converts, but disciples who follow Jesus and His teaching. The third question, am I not a Christian if I am not baptized? I am not saying that you are not a Christian if you are not baptized. You may not be, uh, but I don't know. Uh, If you put your faith in Christ, you are a Christian. But I would ask you some questions like, why would you wait to be baptized? Or why would you not want to be baptized if you're a Christian? And Jesus says, with all authority in heaven or on earth, um, I want disciples to baptize new converts and teach them to obey me, and the things they need to obey are, first, I just said baptism. So just think about it. Why would I not want to be baptized if I'm a Christian? Fourth, do I need to be baptized to take communion? Well, we're going to answer that next week, but for now, just think about two things that I think should be clear. First, the normal, the normal pattern was faith and baptism, then be, being added to the membership of the body where they would take communion regularly. So those living in unrepentant sin would be cut off from the communion with the church, which visibly depicted that someone was no longer living in the domain of King Jesus. So it was a visible picture of the fact that on the inside, we are part of the kingdom of God. On the outside, it's the kingdom of the devil. Those are the two zip codes that God has in mind. So here's the encouragement towards the people of God. If you're on the inside living in faithful friendship and fellowship with the local church, it is a constant assurance and encouragement that you are walking with the Lord and that your future is incredibly bright, even if right now things look dark. But if you're on the outside, the encouragement is don't get comfortable out here. Right? The weather's good in San Diego. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, the weather's good in the local church where God is at work amongst his people. Don't you want to live with the people of God, knowing that you're part of the future that awaits all of them? Fifth, what if I have not practiced in this way in the past? Well, can I tell you, there are so many things that as a preacher, I have to study week in and week out and realize something's got to change. That's kind of my normal disposition as a Christian. I think that God wrote his word and sent his son and has given me his Holy Spirit to help me because I actually needed help. Anybody here think you, you have the Holy Spirit because you're like you're already right and the Holy Spirit just wants to hang out with you because you're so awesome? Like I'm sure that's part of it, but I think most of it is, man, I, it's going to take a lot of work and this is an inside job, you know what I'm saying? Like we can't just like rearrange the stuff on the outside, we got to get in the guts of the stuff, there's got to be some wood change, like this, this roof's going to collapse if we don't do something soon. That's what the Holy Spirit does with me and I think that's what the Holy Spirit's doing with you, whether it be baptism or anything else that the Word of God teaches about. And number six, if I have not been baptized, what do I need to do? Hmm. Get baptized. I think we're done here. I hope this has been helpful. Um, I'm grateful that we do have an all authority given reigning king who loves us, who gave himself for us to purchase his church and his people, to wrap us in his love and to change and transform us from one degree of glory to the next by the power of his spirit, what a glorious God we have well we 're about to get to see a picture, a living picture and demonstration of what we 've been talking about with a number of baptisms. We have four baptisms this morning, so um, you might uh, i wasn 't really kidding about the splash zone. you might want to move, but uh, we 're going to but if you like to get wet you 're fine. I know some people are into that um, but we're excited to see this visible demonstration of the work of God and to hear the testimonies from the saints of God and God's work in their lives. So let me pray for us and then we will uh, partake in some baptism. Let's pray together.